Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 56. Now that spring has finally come to Vermont, I thought it would be a good time to talk to you about what it's like to live in a tiny house in the winter in the northeastern United States, where temperatures can get as low as 30 degrees below zero Fahrenheit and stay that way for days at a time. Specifically, this episode is called How to Survive a Vermont Winter in a Tiny House. We'll break this down into two sections. What you can do while you're building your tiny house with the tiny house design and materials, so we'll call that pre-living, and then what you can do after you've moved into your tiny house. We'll call that after moving in. The number one thing that's gonna make your tiny house livable in the winter is insulation. Insulation is something that you put inside of your walls to help prevent the heat from escaping inside your house. There are lots of different kinds of insulations that come in many different shapes and sizes. When you choose insulation, the main rating that you'll be looking at is something called R value. And the R value of an insulation is its ability to resist the transfer of heat. Different insulations have different R values and they range greatly. So for example, fiberglass insulation, which is very common in standard stick framed single family homes in the United States, has an R value of about 3.5 per inch. Spray foam, on the other hand, which is an insulation that gets sprayed into your house, can have an R value of just about seven per inch. So the insulation that you choose will greatly affect the R value of your walls and therefore how much insulation your tiny house has. If you plan to live in a cold climate with your tiny house, having walls with a high R value is going to be really important for the livability of your house. Because if your house isn't well insulated, it's gonna be difficult to heat, you're always gonna be cold, and it's not gonna be a comfortable place to live. Now, I could do an entire episode on insulation, and maybe I will in the future, because there are so many different kinds. And insulation is one of those things where you're going to have to balance the environmental impact of the material, so both in terms of what kind of energy it takes to produce, and then also what kind of chemicals it releases, uh, what it does to your indoor air quality, etc., with the effectiveness. So there are very natural insulations like sheep's wool insulation. There are very unnatural insulations like spray foam. And I encourage you to do more research and to find a good balance between the materials that you feel comfortable working with and the performance that you're going to get from those materials. So insulation is just the first piece of the puzzle. There are a couple more things that we need to talk about, and the next is air sealing. You could insulate your house really, really well, but if there was a crack around every window and every door, the cold winter winds would blow right through your tiny house and you'd be freezing, despite the fact that you have good insulation. So building a tight structure and preventing air from infiltrating your building is also going to be really important. This comes back to what kind of insulation you use because some insulations like spray foam act as their own air barrier, whereas other insulations like 
Roxol, which is a uh, bat style insulation, so kind of like similar to fiberglass in look and feel, but different material. A bat style insulation is going to require that you do some additional air sealing yourself, whether it's an applied vapor barrier outside of your sheathing or inside. I won't get into the specifics because it's so dependent on what system you use, but air sealing is another important thing to think about. Next is looking at how many windows you have in your tiny house and of what quality your windows are. Windows are a place where it's really common to lose heat. And even if you buy top of the line, triple glazed windows, no window has better insulation than a wall. So every time you put a window in your house, that's gonna be a place where you lose more heat. My tiny house has a lot of windows, and although it's a very tight building, I do feel that I could probably have a few less windows and the house might be a little bit easier to keep warm. The last piece in this insulation puzzle is thermal bridging. For those of you who haven't heard of what thermal bridging is, inside of your wall, if you're building with studs, with you know two by fours or two by sixes, you're going to build this wall and in between your studs, you're gonna put your insulation. So your Roxel foam bats, your spray foam, etc. But each stud acts as a thermal bridge because it's touching the sheathing, which is touching your siding, which is touching the outside. And then on the inside of your house, the stud is touching whatever wall you have, whatever wall material you're using. And so each stud becomes what's called a thermal bridge where, so if you have spray foam, your insulation inside of the cavities is going to be close to 27. However, each stud has an R value of about three or four. So each place that you have a stud becomes what's called a thermal bridge. And there are some ways to mitigate this. One popular way is to use something called outsulation or a sheathing that has some kind of insulation product built into it. And what this does is provides an extra layer of insulation on the outside of your studs so that each stud does not act as such a big thermal bridge. There are other ways you can do this. You don't have to buy a special sheathing product. Another option is to install a layer of rigid foam in between your sheathing and your siding. There are many ways to, to get this done, but keep thermal bridging in mind. Another way to avoid thermal bridging is to build using SIPs or structural insulated panels. And what a SIP is, is a wall that's basically a sandwich of OSB plywood with rigid foam and then another layer of OSB. So there are no studs in a SIP wall. Now, I have some recommendations for you. If you are still puzzling out this whole insulation thing, there are a few episodes that I think you should listen to. Episode 50 with Corbett Lunsford goes into how to build a high-performance tiny house. So Corbett is an expert in this field. He also does home energy audits and has built a tiny house that he really has tested out using science to build a very high-performance building. So that's a good place to start. Another episode is just last week's episode with Isabel Nagel-Brice. Isabel talks a lot about how to build a healthy tiny house, but what we end up talking about a lot is that air sealing and that thermal bridging. So those are two great episodes. 
And finally, if you're interested in learning more about SIPs, you'll want to check out episode 17 with Patrick Sugru. Patrick is a SIPs designer. Uh, he helps people build SIPs tiny houses. And in our conversation, we talk about all those benefits of building with SIPs. To recap this section, to build a tiny house that can best survive a cold winter, you're going to want to insulate well, you're going to want to air seal your structure, and you're going to want to deal with thermal bridging. However, we're not done with things you can do while you're building your tiny house to make it more cold hardy. So another thing is if you are building your tiny house on a trailer, you can build your floor system on top of the trailer and insulate the trailer as well. I'll just back up a little bit because when I built my tiny house, there was no such thing as a tiny house trailer. So I got a utility trailer, I took off every other deck board, and then I framed a floor on top of that trailer system, and I, I insulated that floor with spray foam. However, there are many manufacturers making tiny house trailers, and frequently these trailers come with a metal belly pan welded to the bottom. And what this allows you to do is to insulate within your trailer. So you can basically fill your trailer with insulation. It could be spray foam, it could be Roxol. Again, there's lots of different options. And then you can, on top of that trailer, build that floor system that I did on mine. But what you'll have is an additional four to six inches of insulation in your floors versus what I have. And the floor in a tiny house can definitely get really chilly because it is just hanging out above the thin air. There's nothing underneath my tiny house floors that is protecting me from the cold. It's just whatever temperature the air is, that's the temperature underneath the floors. So adding additional insulation to your floors by insulating inside of your trailer is going to add quite a bit of insulation to your tiny house. All right, now I think we have completed the insulation section and we can move on to heat. So obviously having a heater and having a heater that works really well is going to be important for your life in your tiny house in the winter. So rather than get too deep into different types of heaters, I'll first just suggest that once you have a design for your house and you know how you're building it, you know whether you're building it with SIPs or with stick framed, you know what kind of insulation you're gonna have, you know what kind of windows you're gonna have, you can take all that information and plug it into a heat loss calculator. And there are several of these online. I'll link to my favorite one in the show notes. And what a heat loss calculator is gonna let you do is plug in all this information and then figure out how many BTUs of heat per hour your house is going to need at certain temperatures. BTU stands for British Thermal Unit, and it's a, it's a unit of heat. And it's used in the heat world to describe how powerful heaters are. And once you have a, a number in mind, then you can start actually shopping for a heater that's going to be able to heat your tiny house. This takes the guesswork out of deciding, well, is this thing gonna be enough or is it not gonna be enough? The heat loss calculator will also help prevent you from oversizing your heat system because it's obvious that if you undersize your heat system, it's gonna be cold. 
But interestingly, if you're using something like a mini split heat pump, having a heating system that is too powerful also reduces the efficiency of the system and makes it more strain on that system. I go into this in great detail in the upcoming reissue of Tiny House Decisions, which is my signature resource on how to plan your tiny house effectively. Another thing I'll say about heat is to consider having multiple heat sources. In my house, I have a direct vent propane heater as my primary heat source. However, I also have a wall-mounted electric radiant panel uh, mounted to the wall near my desk, and that is set to a very low temperature, but the idea is that if I run out of propane or the pilot light goes out or something goes wrong, as the temperature in the house drops, that electric heater will be able to kick back in and keep the house from freezing up. Even though my tiny house is pretty quick to heat up, you know, when I get in there and turn on the heat, it doesn't take long to warm up. The same is true in reverse. So when the heat goes out, the house cools off pretty quickly. So in a really cold snap, if my heat goes out, it's only a few hours before it's very cold in the house. If you live in an area that's prone to power outages, it might be nice to think about how you'll heat your house during a power outage. In my setup, my propane heater does not require any electricity to run, so it's able to turn itself on even if there's a long power outage. I can't say the same for the electric heater, but that's fine because it's my backup to the propane. It would be a pretty rare situation that I both run out of propane and have a power outage all at the same time. If your primary heat source is through electricity, you could consider having a small wood stove or a small propane heater in your house, or you could choose to not have a backup heater at all. It's just something that I like to think about or I like to recommend that people think about if they live in an area that's really prone to power outages. Another big challenge of tiny house living in the cold is plumbing, specifically getting water into your house. So one thing that I recommend for all tiny houses, even ones that aren't going to be in super cold places, is to put your pipes on the inside of your wall system, uh, which is sometimes referred to as the conditioned space, rather than within your walls. Most tiny houses are only framed out of two by fours, and even if you use great insulation, if you put your pipes inside of your walls, there might only be an inch or two of insulation between them and the cold. That's why I recommend surface mounting your plumbing, and you can do this pretty effectively and hide everything. It's not like you're gonna have to look at your plumbing all the time. If you bring your water into the house right where your kitchen is, you can usually hide all of that plumbing inside of the lower kitchen cabinets. I also recommend having what's called a water wall. So what this means is all the plumbing stuff happens on one concentrated area. And this can be really efficient when you put your bathroom right up against the kitchen so that all the plumbing can happen in a really concentrated area rather than running long lines around your tiny house and giving yourself more opportunities for your plumbing to freeze up in the winter. Finally, one general design tip is to have an entryway where you can take off wet or snowy clothes. 
Tiny houses are small, but you definitely need to think about that landing pad area. You know, in a bigger house, this might be called the mudroom. In my tiny house, I have a covered porch, and in the winter, I don't like to take my shoes off out there. Um, but inside the tiny house, I have two large entryway mats that I have trimmed to size, and they sit right in the first about five feet of the house. So there's a nice big area where I can come in with snowy things and not have to worry about getting the floors wet or getting snow or mud on anything. And in the summer, I just take those mats away and use a small mat in front of the door rather than the big, you know, full cover mats. All right, so I've just given you a whole bunch of things that you can do before you build your tiny house. But let's talk about some tips for after you've moved into your tiny house. What can you do to survive those winter months and make it a little bit easier on yourself? The first thing that I recommend is to insulate around your trailer during the winter. There are a lot of different ways to accomplish this, but one of the most cost-effective ways is to use hay bales or straw bales around your trailer base. Straw is a really excellent insulator. In fact, there are houses that are built using straw bales as insulation. By putting straw bales around your tiny house trailer, you're blocking the wind from blowing underneath the house, and you're also adding quite a bit of insulation. It's not gonna be huge, but it definitely makes a difference. In my tiny house, I get enough snow that I'm actually able to just build up snow banks around the house for insulation. And surprisingly, snow is a very good insulator. But in most places, you're gonna to need to use some other material. So hay bales are one popular option. Another option would be to build some custom skirting. And so this could be plywood with rigid foam attached to the back of it. It could just be raw rigid foam, but that might not look very aesthetically pleasing. Uh, but again, you wanna just put something around your trailer to block the wind from blowing under it and to add a little bit of insulation. Another huge quality of life booster for me was getting my propane delivered. When I first started living in the tiny house, I was filling up 20 pound propane tanks manually, you know, bringing them to gas station or the hardware store and having them filled. But in the coldest months where I was using the most heat, I was going through a 20 pound propane tank in about a week. And this got really tiresome. I was a slave to the propane tanks and I was constantly worried that they were gonna run out, so I was always checking my tanks. And so I was really happy when I got two 100-pound propane tanks. And so these are about the same diameter as your normal grill propane tank, but they're about four feet tall. And they have the kind of valve on top that allows a propane delivery truck to come and hook up and fill them up. And so now I get propane delivered automatically once per month which has really reduced the stress of wondering if I'm gonna run out of propane or not. Some propane companies will even set a tank down for you and uh, basically let you use their tank for free because they know that it turns you into a captive customer for them. And I didn't do that because I still wanted some level of mobility in my house. The, the 100 pound tanks are too heavy for me to pick up myself, but they can be moved, whereas you know, a 100-gallon tank or a 200-gallon tank is gonna be really big 
and kind of ugly too. To see a picture of my propane setup, head over to the show notes page for this episode at thetinyhouse.net slash 056. And that's where I'm going to be posting links to all the resources I mentioned, like the heat loss calculator. So there'll be a picture of my propane tanks there as well. Something that we just added to the tiny house this year was some insulated blinds. Remember how I mentioned that windows are not the best insulators? Well, you can manually add insulation to the inside of your windows by making some insulated shades. If you know someone in your life who is good at sewing, you might be able to convince them to make some shades for you. The materials can be expensive because they do require that you put some insulation in them, but that's what you need. And so when we leave the tiny house, we put all the shades down. It makes it very dark inside, but it basically puts a layer of insulation over all of our windows. And we have noticed a small reduction in heating costs. It also just makes the house more comfortable feeling inside um, when you aren't losing as much heat through those windows. The next thing you can do is even if you haven't done a great job of insulating your floors, putting down some carpets really helps insulate your feet from touching those cold floors. So as I mentioned, we use big mats in the entryway. We also have little carpet squares that are actually carpet samples um, in front of the kitchen sink, in front of the shower, just places where you normally stand and you don't wanna be touching that cold floor with your bare feet. On the flip side of that, a warm pair of slippers goes a long way to insulating your feet from the cool floors in the house. In the pre-building section, we talked about putting your plumbing on the inside of your walls. And now I wanna talk about some important things that you'll need to do with your plumbing after you've moved in. This is an issue that affects tiny houses everywhere. In fact, it's usually the tiny houses that are in not traditionally cold places that have issues with their pipes freezing. They'll get a cold snap and the temperature will go below zero and they kind of get caught off guard because they didn't really build the house or didn't really expect to have cold weather. And so what I'm talking about is making sure your water source doesn't freeze. There are a few different ways to do this, but the most common is to use either heat tape, so electrical heat tape, or a heated hose. And anywhere you have a hose just outside exposed to the air with water sitting in it, you're going to need to keep that from freezing. On my tiny house, I use electrical heat tape. There are also heated hose products that you can use. I just wanna mention it here because this is a common problem, uh, water inlets freezing. So even though you've super insulated your tiny house and you've thought of everything, after you park, after you move into the place where you're living, just shore up your water and make sure that there are no exposed pipes that are gonna be able to be exposed to freezing temperatures that don't have some kind of heat on them uh, and even insulation wrapped around them as well. Finally, I just wanna encourage you to go outside. Tiny houses are tiny and there's not a ton of living space and so it works best when you can use the outdoors as your living room, as your exercise room, as whatever. But I encourage you to go outside, bundle up, find some hobbies, find some things that you enjoy doing outside in the winter. Um, for me, it's skiing. Um, for you, it could be 
just going for a walk in the cold, or it could be hiking, or even riding a bicycle. You can actually do a lot of things in the cold uh, that you can do a lot of things in the cold if you just bundle up properly. Make your tiny house warm and cozy on the inside, but be willing to leave it and explore the outside. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this second solo episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. I'm sure I missed some things. This is not an exhaustive list. So if you have suggestions on ways to survive a winter in a tiny house, head over to the show notes page at thetinyhouse.net slash 056 and leave a comment. I'd love to hear your suggestions and I'll be sure to read through them and respond to them because I know there are more great ideas out there. Also, if you enjoyed this solo episode and you have a topic that you'd like me to cover, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email, podcast at thetinyhouse.net, and let me know what you'd like to hear from the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. Well, that's all for this week's show. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.